Amen. Well, would you open up your copy of God's Word with me? We'll open to Romans chapter 1. As we begin a new series uh, today through the book of Romans. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word? Romans chapter 1 and verses 1 through 7. This is the very word of God. Let's give it our attention. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Earlier this week, I had traveled to Philadelphia for meetings of the Christian Education Committee. And during one of my breaks, I was sitting and having a conversation with one of my colleagues who was asking me about how I was feeling about coming back from sabbatical. And I thought about it for a minute, and I, I said, I'm, I'm really, really excited, and I'm really, really nervous. Um, maybe the best way to describe it is, is kind of like a child waiting in line to ride on a roller coaster. I don't know um, if you have had this experience of taking your kids on a roller coaster. I can remember with my kids, Sam in particular, was very eager uh, to go on the roller coaster. He was maybe nine or ten years old. You know, he just squeezed under that height limit sign. He was finally able to ride. He was super pumped. But I noticed that the closer and closer we got in line, the more apprehensive he became, right? Suddenly, the the... The screams of joy sounded a little bit more like screams of terror. But he really wanted to do it, and I think as much as he wanted to do it, he wanted to come home and tell Marcus he had done it, right? Um, but that sense of apprehension, that sense of fear mixed with excitement, that's a little bit how I feel here. Um, but it's not just because I haven't done it in a while. It certainly is that. I haven't done it in a while. But there's this nervous excitement um, for other reasons. First of all, because of a renewed appreciation for what is happening right now. Over the last several months, I have, I have had the great opportunity to sit under the preaching of the Word. To sit under the preaching of the Word. Not to be the one standing and speaking and preaching the Word, but to to actually receive it, to have that word convict me and comfort me 
to hear those words of forgiveness and absolution spoken over me, uh, to have put bread and wine in my hands and say, this is for you. And that has been very good for my soul. But it has also given me a renewed appreciation for what is happening in this moment. It has given me a renewed appreciation for the power of the Word of God as it is faithfully proclaimed. And I think another reason for this sort of nervous excitement in returning is that I've chosen to return to Romans. (laughs) Right? Romans uh, is like the Mount Rainier um, of biblical exposition. I lived in Seattle. It's where Marianne and I met. And as you drove down I-5, Mount Rainier just came up over the horizon, dwarfing everything else. It was the only thing you saw, its its snow-capped glacier peak. Romans is like that. It stands out as the peak of the clearest exposition and explanation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, This is a letter that from its time of its writing in 50 AD or so, a letter that God has used to transform the lives of his people over and over again, and then through his people to transform his church. Um, when St. Augustine was wrestling with his faith, and he was uh, actually he was struggling to give up his sinful lifestyle, he, he was unsure if this was something he wanted to do, to give up everything for Christ. And he describes in his confessions how he heard this voice of a child saying, take up and read. And he took it as a message from God. And in the garden where he was, there there was a Bible chained there in the garden. And he goes to the Bible and he randomly turns. And there he finds himself in Romans 13. And he reads these words. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And Augustine says, instantly, as soon as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. God used the book of Romans to transform St. Augustine. Over a thousand years later, a young man A monk named Martin Luther was wrestling with his own sense of sinfulness and how it was that he might have any hope of righteousness, any hope of being received by a perfectly righteous God. And then one day as he was reading his Bible and wrestling with Romans, the light of the gospel began to dawn in his heart. As he read these words from Romans 1, in it, that is in the gospel, The righteousness of God is revealed as it is written. He who through faith is righteous shall live. And he says, there I began to understand. I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And here I felt that I was altogether born again and that I had entered paradise itself through open gates. God used Romans to transform Martin Luther and through him to transform the church. 
at the risk of putting myself in a list with Augustine and Luther, but I'm going to do it. It was reading Romans 9. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, that as a young college freshman I came to understand and to appreciate for the first time the sovereignty of God and salvation. That salvation was not an arrangement where I did a little bit and God did a little bit, nor was it an arrangement where I did a little bit and God did a lot of it. It was an arrangement where from beginning to end, God had done everything. It was all of grace. And even that grace to believe was his gift. God used the book of Romans to transform me. And so I'm nervous and excited for you as well. Because Romans is powerful. Because God's word is powerful. And I believe that as we work through this study together, as Paul says in verse 16 of this first chapter, it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. I believe that God is going to be powerfully at work in your hearts. That as we work through this book of Romans, God is going to change you. He's going to change the way you think about your sin. He's going to change the way you think about His grace and salvation. He's going to change the way that you think about your sanctification and your growth in grace. He's going to change the way that you think about His sovereignty and His purposes. He's going to change the way that you think about your service and what you owe to Him and to others. You may not realize it, but I've very sneakily just given you an outline of the whole book. And I've alliterated it for you. We're going to be seeing sin put on full display and God's wrath against it. We're going to see God's grace and salvation. We're going to see his sanctification at work in our hearts as we die to sin and live unto God. We're going to see his sovereignty on display in his election. We're going to see the service that we owe to others and to him. And so as we begin here today, and I, I, I recognize that this is an extended introduction, but as we begin here today, would you pray with me that God would be changing you, that God would be working in your heart through his word, and as you pray that prayer, God will honor it, and he will very gently and sometimes abrasively, convict you of your sins, and he will comfort you in the gospel. And so as we first look at these seven verses before us today, let me, as, as I am used to doing, give you just three pegs to hang your thoughts on this morning. Three, three things that we see in this opening passage. The first thing we see is Paul's greeting. We find it in verse 1, as Paul identifies himself to the Romans, and he lists his qualifications for the gospel. Uh, we see Paul's greeting. Secondly, we see Paul's gospel. In verses 2 through 4, as Paul sort of sets the tone here for the whole letter, and he gives us a brief summary of the message of the good news about Jesus Christ, we see his gospel. And finally, we see Paul's goal in verses 5 through 7. 
as Paul tells us what it is that he hopes to accomplish among these Roman believers. Uh, So we have here Paul's greeting, Paul's gospel, and Paul's goal. Look at the greeting with me in verse 1. We read, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now let me just ask, if you were going to introduce yourself to a group group of people, uh, most of whom you had never met before, what would you lead with? You see, Paul, he was acquainted with a few of the Christians in Rome. You find that in chapters 15 and 16. He knew some of them, but most of them he had never met, and he had never actually been there. He had been hoping to go there. Uh, He'd been hoping to go there for quite a long time. But for one reason or another, in God's providence, he'd never quite gotten there. Uh, I, I love the understated sort of way that he says it in verse 13. Thus far I have been prevented. Well, think about the kinds of things that had prevented him. <laughs> he was church planting everywhere he went. He was establishing churches. He was training leaders. And then when he wasn't planting churches, he was being shipwrecked. And he was being beaten. And he was being imprisoned for extended periods of time. Uh, In Paul's introduction to the Romans, he could have said something about all the things that he had suffered for the sake of the gospel. He could have also appealed to his lineage and pedigree. We get that in, in Philippians, right? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. According to the flesh, he had all of these qualifications. At the very least, we might expect him to say something about his status as a Roman citizen. He is writing to Romans, after all. He has a brotherhood with them, and he did not have to buy his Roman citizenship. He was a Roman citizen by birth. What would you say? How would you lead out? What would I say if I was writing to another congregation in the OPC. Hi, I'm Joel. This is where I went to college. Here's where I went to seminary. These are my degrees. These are the the boards I've served on. These are the committees I've served on. This is how many years I've been ordained. Paul doesn't do any of that. He leads with this. Paul, a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus. And you should know that when he says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, he is writing to an audience that is very familiar with slavery. In fact, probably one or two out of every ten people in the Roman congregation was a slave. Maybe more. Uh, It's estimated that somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of that population were slaves. We have tons of historical record. I read some of it this week. Uh, Seneca gives a real eye-opening view of slavery in ancient Rome. And many slaves, as you might expect, were severely mistreated, severely maligned. They, they would be, they would have, as, as Peter says, crooked masters. And he uses this Greek word, which is the same word that we use to describe scoliosis in the back. They are crooked. But other slaves were very well treated. Uh, They were even considered part of the household. 
But whether they were very poorly treated or very well treated, they all had one thing in common. They understood what it meant to belong to somebody else. They understood what it meant to be the property of another, to have the whole of their lives directed by the will of someone else. And I think that's the very simple point that Paul is making. When he calls himself the servant of Jesus Christ, I think what he's saying is what he says elsewhere. I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. He is letting the Romans know from the outset that he is serving at the will of another. He is writing at the will of another. But who is this master? Who is this Lord that Paul serves? Think of him. He is the servant of Christ Jesus, of King Jesus. That's what you should read. Every time you hear the word Christ, you should think the anointed king. And I, I totally understand that it's, we're so familiar with saying Christ Jesus that the weight of that title does not bear down on it as it should. But we are saying King Jesus. He was not just the servant of just anyone. He was the servant of King Jesus. In fact, I find it interesting that many of the titles that Paul uses here, Lord, Son of God, uh, these are titles that the Roman world would use to describe Caesar. In fact, the Romans confessed that he was Lord. This was one of the ways you distinguished from Christian, early Christians. Will you say Caesar is Lord? And if you say Jesus is Lord, it might be to your death. They even, did you know this? They even referred to his birthday as good news to be published throughout the land. But how sharply Jesus stands in contrast to Caesar. Jesus is no earthly king. He's no despot, no dictator. He had not conquered by the sword on, on the field of battle with the blood of his, his soldiers. He conquered through his own blood shed on the cross. The price that Jesus paid for Paul was his own life. He didn't buy him with silver and gold, though all the silver and gold in all the world are his. Peter says, you've not been redeemed with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. Jesus bought Paul with his own life. And you know, because of that, Paul did not serve Jesus begrudgingly. Paul did not serve Jesus resentfully. He served him readily and willingly. He was not ashamed to be called a servant of Jesus. To be called a servant of Jesus was his greatest honor. He was a, a servant of the King of Kings and of the Lord of Lords. He was his ambassador. This was a great and high calling. And as a servant of Christ Jesus, Paul was honored in another way. He was called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. That word apostle, it just means someone who is sent out 
with a message. That's what it literally means. But in the Bible, the, the word apostle refers not just generally to anyone who is being sent out with a message, but very specifically to those men who had been authoritatively commissioned by Jesus to carry the gospel out. They were his representatives and his heralds. Uh, this office of apostle came to an end when the last apostle died. They were specifically called and they were set apart for the gospel of God. It's interesting that that language is used, set apart for the gospel. In Paul's case, I think that that language actually carries a little bit of extra freight. Because who was Paul before he was Paul the Apostle? He was Saul the Pharisee. And did you know that the word Pharisee literally means set apart? It means separated. The Pharisees were those who were separated unto the law. How totally different is Paul's separation now in the gospel? He who once persecuted Christ in his church now finds his whole life given over not, not only in service to Christ in his church, but he sees himself as separated for the advancement of the growth of that very church he once sought to destroy. And it's through this message of the gospel that he is going to, to bring the lordship of Jesus Christ to the nations. Well, we've heard Paul's greeting. Let's consider the gospel that he preaches. We find it in verses 2 through 4. And let me just say first here that Paul makes it clear throughout the letter uh, that the gospel is the reason that he's writing. And I think it's helpful to understand maybe the difference between Romans as a letter and some of the other, most all of the other uh, epistles of Paul. Uh, all the other epistles of Paul are what we would call occasional letters. That is to say, they were written for a very specific occasion. They were churches that Paul himself or one of his associates had planted. And Paul was writing to that church to answer some very specific theological question or to address some concern. Think about Pastor Crawford's sermon series on Galatians and how Paul is very specifically dealing with these issues of law-keeping and circumcision, right? And, and of how you live in the gospel. Or you might think of the book of Corinthians and how Paul is writing to this church to address these very specific uh, issues that had arisen in the church. He had planted these churches, they knew him well, and they wanted to have his opinion on these matters. But Romans is different. Romans is not a church that Paul had planted. And he tells us in Romans 15 that he is not trying to build on another man's foundation. Somebody else had done all of this work. But rather, as Romans 15 tells us, the reason he's writing Romans is because he wants to be better acquainted with these people because he desires that, that they might become a supporting church for him as he brings the gospel even further west. Paul's ambition is to spread the gospel as far and wide as he can. He hasn't yet made it to Rome, but he already is looking past Rome to Spain. 
And he wants, like a missionary coming that needs the support of a church and needs a home base out of which he might do his missions, he's coming and he wants thinking that maybe Rome might be the church that would send him on, that the gospel might be known in Spain. But if he's going to do that, they first need to know that he's legit. They first need to know that the gospel that he preaches is the same gospel that the whole church believes, that it's the same gospel that they had already received. And so right from the outset of the letter, Paul preaches the gospel. He gives the gospel in this very summary form. Um, And he tells us a couple of things about the gospel right at the outset here. The first thing he tells us about the gospel is this. It's not something new. The gospel is not new. As John Murray says in his commentary, the gospel is not a message that broke de novo upon the world with the appearance of Christ and the ministry of the apostles. It was, as verse 2 says, that which was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We need only to think here of Luke 24, right? And the way that Jesus himself meets with the apostles after his resurrection. Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the things in the scriptures concerning himself. This gospel of Jesus Christ is not a new message. This was the message that was being declared right from the very beginning. Now think about, no sooner had Adam and Eve fallen into sin, and the gospel is there. As God provides a sacrifice, and as he clothes them and he covers them in the skins of a substitute. This is the gospel that is announced to Abraham and to his seed. It's the gospel that's prefigured in the Passover and Exodus. Uh, It is the gospel that is symbolized in God's presence in the tabernacle. With all of those types and shadows of the sacrificial system, it's the gospel represented in the humility of David and his majesty as king. It is the gospel that comes to us in the servant of the Lord. It's not new. It was promised beforehand. Uh, The author of Hebrews says that the good news came to them just as it did to us, the gospel. But they did not receive it with faith. The gospel is not new. The second thing about the gospel, which we've already said, but we'll say it now here specifically, is that the gospel is a message about the person and work of Jesus. Look at verse 3. The good news is concerning his son, that is, his eternally begotten son. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, it it would be easy, and I mean easy, to pause here and to preach a whole sermon just on this verse. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones probably did it in several. But I am not Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Martin Lloyd-Jones preached on Romans for 16 years and died before he finished it. 
So you might be grateful. I plan to take about two years to get through Romans. We could preach a whole sermon on this verse alone, but we are going to have this gospel message fully understood and unpacked for us as we go. And so I just want to look at the summary that Paul gives us here. The summary is important because it focuses the gospel very narrowly for us. It doesn't focus it on our experience in life, on our conversion experience or some uh, post-conversion experience. It doesn't focus the gospel on a social program or a civil program or even a missions program. The gospel is transformative. It does transform people and it does transform societies But that's not the gospel itself. The gospel is a message about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the two aspects of Jesus' life that Paul uses as a summary of the gospel are his birth and his resurrection. What we often refer to in theological language, you can see this in our catechism, as his humiliation and his exaltation. How are the offices of Christ worked out? They are worked out in his estate of humiliation and in his estate of exaltation. And that's how Paul summarizes the gospel. That on the one hand, this eternal son of God was born. That he had a a royal yet human lineage. He was descended from David according to the flesh. And by the flesh here, we're just meant to understand that he was human. That he was, the eternal Son of God became really and truly human. He was the Son of David. But that is a royal line. On the other hand, this eternal Son of God, who became truly and fully man, did something that no man has ever done before. He rose from the dead. He was, as Paul says, declared to be the Son of God in power. Son of God is a messianic title. We, we have seen that. And he's declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead, by the Spirit of holiness. That's the same movement that we find in Philippians 2, isn't it? Uh, where he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross, and therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above all things, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Sinclair Ferguson says this, At his resurrection... Jesus stepped forth from the tomb in the transforming power of the Holy Spirit as the first man to break through the power of death. Like Neil Armstrong said when he stepped on the moon, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. That first step out of the tomb on Easter morning was a giant leap for mankind. Because for the first time ever, a man had broken the power of death. Death, which was the curse due to us for our sins, was conquered. 
King Jesus in the glorious power of the Holy Spirit by his obedient death and his glorious resurrection had triumphed over death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Kind of want to sing up from the grave he arose, right? With a, a mighty triumph for his foes. The gospel and the good news is just this. It is the message of Jesus' victory over sin and death being proclaimed in the whole world. But as one of my professors used to say, Michael Horton, he would put it this way, it's important that we remember that the gospel is good news. It is news. It is a headline. It is something that God has done, something that has been accomplished. It is finished. And the first half of this book, Paul is going to spend explaining why this gospel message is God's power unto salvation. But it all is located on the person and work of Jesus Christ. We've heard Paul's greeting. We've heard the summary of his gospel. In conclusion, let's, let's just hear about his goal. Paul tells us in verse 5 and following that the reason he received this grace and apostleship was to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. What does Paul hope to accomplish? Or let me put it another way. What is the gospel for? What does the gospel do? in your life. First, the gospel is meant to bring about the obedience of faith. He repeats this. It's like a parenthesis on the book of Romans. He says here at the beginning, the gospel is to bring about the obedience of faith. And at the very end of the letter in chapter 16, he says that my preaching of Jesus in the gospel is to bring about the obedience of faith. What does Paul mean by that? Well, I think very clearly it means that the gospel is something that is to be obeyed, isn't it? The gospel is to be obeyed. Both Paul and Peter warn about God's judgment for those who do not obey the gospel. The question is, how do you obey the gospel? And I think it's there in those words. The obedience of faith. Not because he has in his mind the obedience that necessarily follows faith. Faith does not mean faithfulness. It is true that those who believe will begin more and more to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's not thinking of that here. He's not thinking of that obedience that follows faith. He's thinking about the obedience of faith itself. Paul makes it clear in Romans 10 when he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. The way that you obey the gospel message is by believing the gospel message. With the heart, one believes and is justified. And everyone who believes will not be put to shame. 
Now, I need to very quickly say, will that obedience of faith also produce faithful obedience? Yes, absolutely. It must, as he's going to say later. Can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? May it never be. But we are not justified by our faithful obedience. Please hear this. You are not justified by your faithful obedience. You are justified by your obedience of faith in the one who is faithfully obedient. In Jesus, the truly faithful Son. That's why Luther said, There I began to finally understand that the righteousness of God, that thing I've been striving for and always fall short of, the righteousness of God which is being manifest now in the gospel apart from the law, that righteousness of God is a gift that He gives, that I receive. That righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives, by a gift of God, namely by faith. The gospel is for bringing about the obedience of faith. The second thing the gospel is for, the second thing Paul hopes to accomplish, is that the gospel is meant to bring about the obedience of faith among all nations. Now, I know that that is something that we just take for granted because, you know, we live 2,000 years later in Gainesville, Florida, a place that they had never even heard of. Of course, the good news is for all the nations. We are all the nations. But if you could be transported back in time to the days of the apostles, you would find that almost nothing could ire rouse the ire of a faithful Jew more than the suggestion that their promised Messiah, the son of David, the king of kings, was the king of the Gentile dogs. No, he's our king. This is what motivated Paul. This is why Paul was so vehemently persecuting the church. The church was saying that their Messiah was the Messiah of the whole world. And now, the very one who persecuted the church, in God's beautiful irony, he makes him into the apostle to the Gentiles. To bring about the obedience of faith, um, not only among the Jews, Paul still cares about the Jews, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's going to get into all of that. He goes to the synagogue first and he proclaims Jesus, the Messiah. But it's not only to the Jews, it's also among the Gentiles, even among those once despised Romans. They hated the Romans. They were the oppressors. And now he's preaching to the Romans. And it's almost as if he wants to highlight it because he says these words, including you, Romans, you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
These people he once despised, he now says, you're loved by God. And you're called to be saints. These people he once disdained, he now considers them brothers and sisters. Because he says grace and peace from God, our Father. We share the same Father and the one Lord Jesus Christ. This includes you, Romans. It also includes you, Gainesvillians. It includes you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. I think, perhaps, this is the most beautiful note we could end on today. That we who have received the gospel in faith belong to Jesus Christ. There are very few things more important in life than having a sense of belonging. The other day I watched this very short video clip of this pair of sisters. They had made it for their foster dad on Father's Day. They gave him this card, and in the card they asked him if he would be willing to adopt them. And with tears in his eyes, he hugged them and said he wanted nothing more. They wanted to know that they belonged to him. I cannot help but hear in this language of Paul, Heidelberg Catechism 1. What is your only comfort in life and in death? What is the only thing that gives you comfort in life and death? That I with body and soul, in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I have a very simple question for you this morning. Do you belong to Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord? Are you his servant? Are you his child? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you received this message of Christ's victory over sin and death with joyful obedience of faith? And if you have, and I trust that most of you have, then you should have no doubt about your relationship to God. None. You belong. You are loved by God. You are called to be saints. You have grace given to you for your sins. You have peace, shalom. You have hope because you belong body and soul and life and in death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You should know. You should walk out of this room without a shadow of a doubt that I know where I belong. I know who my Father is. And if you're here today, and you have not obeyed the gospel. Why not today? Why not today? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's not my promise. That's God's promise to you. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame.
Amen. Beloved, let us believe the gospel together as we obey the gospel together as we belong to Jesus Christ as his servants and children. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we are so grateful to belong to you that we are not the servants of some crooked master. We are the servants of the one who gave himself up for us, who laid down his life for us. We do not serve you begrudgingly. We are not ashamed to be called your servants. We are so grateful to belong to you to be covered in that grace and peace which is ours through the good news of Christ's victory over sin and over death. Lord, we pray that you would use this word that you wrote through your servant Paul so many years ago, that you would use it by the power of your Holy Spirit to change us, to work inside of us, and to remind us of the great grace that is ours, grace far greater than all of our sins. And Lord, may, as we are transformed by this gospel, may the fruit of it be that we are always looking into the face of our beloved Jesus Christ with delight and love and readiness to obey his will. Help us to this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As wonderful as it has been to receive the sacraments from others, I have longed to place it in your hands and to remind you that this meal is given for you. And just as you think about the sacraments for a moment, as you think about this supper that the Lord instituted on the night in which he was betrayed, I want want you to think about both his humiliation on the one hand and his exaltation on the other. You see the humiliation in the symbols themselves. The bread, he says, represents his body. And as the bread comes to you today, it comes broken and torn into pieces. It reminds you of what your Savior underwent for your salvation. It reminds you of the purchase price that was made. The wine, as it comes to you, comes to you poured out. And Jesus says, this wine represents the blood of the covenant. It reminds you of his substitution and sacrifice and that his life was poured out for yours. But even as you look upon these symbols of his humiliation, I would remind you that Jesus is here present with us spiritually. Jesus is physically or transformed, glorified spiritually at the throne of the Father, at his right hand. He is in heaven, ruling and reigning right now. And it's sort of like this table extends from here to heaven. And he sits on the other side of it, on his royal throne. And now through his minister, he gives you bread and wine. And he says, take and eat. Think about it like this. If you have obeyed the gospel... Your king is commanding you to take these elements and to eat and to be reminded of his grace to you. What a kind command. What a kind command that he gives us every single week. 
that he is so concerned about our spiritual growth. He's so concerned about our doubts. He's so concerned about our feelings of guilt and shame that every week he commands us, come back to this table. Here, this is my body. I gave it for you. Here, this is my blood. I poured it out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Grace and peace be with you. And so as we come to this table, let's come at the command of our Savior. But the Lord doesn't command just everyone to come. He commands those who have been obedient to the gospel. If you have not by faith obeyed the gospel, you should not come to this table. If you have not obeyed the gospel, these elements actually represent a threat and a curse. They are the symbols of death that you deserve. And so they serve as a warning to you. And so I would call you to faith. Because even though they warn you, there is also a call here to faith, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to know more of what that means, if you desire to be saved, please come and speak with me. There's nothing in the world that I want to speak with you more about than how you might be the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as we come to this table then, let's come in faith, obeying the command of our King, ready to receive what he provides. Let's take these ordinary elements then and ask for his blessing. Lord, as we come to your table, we are so grateful that you command us to come, that you know the weakness of our heart. You know our doubts. You know the shame that we feel, the guilt over our sins. You know our desire to be free of them. And so every week you command us to come. You call us to take these elements, to eat them and drink them, that just as, as regular bread and wine might nourish our physical bodies, so these elements might nourish our souls. Lord, we ask that you would now set apart these ordinary elements for this holy use, that as we receive them in faith, we might truly receive you and all of your blessings of grace. And we ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.